0: Hi, I'm Mark Spiegler, the Global Director of Art Basel. Welcome to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. Widely known as Swiss Beats, Kasim Dean is one of the most successful producers in the history of hip-hop music. But today we're talking about his involvement with the visual arts, where he has been a highly engaged patron, including serving on the board of the Brooklyn Museum. Unlike many collectors, Kasim has made his acquisitions very visible, using his massive social media presence as a megaphone in support of the artists he believes in. Equity and ownership are major issues for him. Kasim's experience in the music world has led him to evangelize for new financial models that better benefit visual artists. I first met him in 2017, when he staged the No Commissions Fair in Miami, where artists got 100% of the sales from their works. Alongside his wife, the singer Alicia Keys, Kasim recently became the co-chair of the foundation supporting the legacy of Gordon Parks, the legendary photographer, actor, and activist. As you'll hear in this wide-ranging conversation, he thinks a lot about race, culture, and the responsibilities that come with the power that he wields. When you do research, you come across fun facts. And one was really surprising. I don't think in a million years, I would have guessed that your first artwork that you purchased would have been from Ansel Adams. First of all, is that accurate? And secondly, if it is, how did that happen?
1: Yes, definitely accurate. I had um, an art mentor by the name of David Rogaff, who's still big in the art world. He's one of the owners of the AirTay Estate. And I remember going to his gallery and being a big pest about the prices and everything like that. And he showed me the difference from a G Clay. He showed me a difference from an AP, an Artist Proof. He showed me the difference of all of these different things, especially price-wise. I was like, okay, well, the Warhol Diamond Dust series I love, but why is this piece 50000 more than the other piece? And he broke all those things down. He had a lot of patience with me, and he built my confidence up into collecting. And even to this day, I thank him. How old were you at the time? Kassim. About 21.
0: That's a young age to start collecting. What motivated you to do that?
1: <laughs> well, I bought my first home uh, when I was 19 uh, from being successful in music, and I wanted to put paintings on my wall. I didn't want posters or anything like that. And I, I went to Clive Davis, who's one of my mentors. He had beautiful art in his house, and that's why I um. My earlier works that I have in my collection, which I still never sold to this day, you know, I have Mel Rose, I have Chagall's, I have Dolly's, I have Keith Heron's, I have Sam Francis. So the early part of my collecting consisted of those works because those are the works that I was seeing in Clive Davis' house and people's homes that I was going to that I wanted to impress business wise, which is why I say that. I started collecting for the wrong reasons. It took a long time for me to really find out what I wanted to really collect and understand it at the same time.
0: What was the first artwork that
1: influenced you, that really marked you? I can blame that on Ansel Adams, but when I seen the Ansel Adams, which is a landscape, it felt like a place that I would never be able to go to at that time. Since that time, I've been to many places that look like the picture that I still have today. And it's of uh, a mountaintop with snow, but it made me feel like I was away from home, which felt great. I was just attracted to it. Black and white photography always felt strong to me. The Dean collection became the biggest collective of Barclay Hendrix landscapes. And the reason why is because you never really see people of color painting landscapes and doing different things like that. And it just felt strong. When you talk about
0: the Ansel Adams purchase, it makes me think of this notion that the first time we ever traveled, is by reading. In a sense, you were traveling to a place you couldn't go through this artwork. You were probably the least likely type of person to be buying art around the year 2000, which is, say, a young black man who didn't have a job on Wall Street. What was that like? What were the reactions that you got when you came in
1: looking to buy work? This is why I respect Mr. Rogoff, because even his employees didn't think I was serious. It was just him seeing my consistency. It was him seeing me being inquisitive as much as I came in that gallery because I had braids in my hair, my pants were baggy, my clothes were baggy. It wasn't how I look today. And I really had the money at that time. But if you see me coming in the gallery, there's no way that you'd think that I had the money. So most people thought I was joking or playing around. and I was super serious. Out of all of the galleries that I went to in Chelsea and Downtown, Mr. Rogaf was a smart man. He took me serious and I ended up spending millions of dollars with him. I bought the Warhol Basquiat Ashes collaboration from him. I remember doing MTV Cribs when I was around and I bought an outfit to match the painting. <laughs> Nobody in my industry was even thinking about it. It wasn't even cool to talk about art. I remember my parents was laughing at me because I collected art at that time. You know, it's like, man, you're spending five hundred thousand on some art. Like, what are you doing, Swiss? You could buy a Rolls Royce for that. But I'm like, okay, I got the Rolls Royce too, but this is what I want to do.
0: This brings up a really interesting issue, which is the role that you've had as an archetype, prototype mentor to other Black collectors, specifically in your industry. I'm curious when that happened, how that happened, what was different with those people?
1: I just think that they weren't equipped with the information. Now those the same people that I'm talking about own some of the most prestigious works that we've seen in the sales. And then I laughed because I remember those moments. I remember being introduced as, this is Swiss, this is my producer, but don't let him talk to you about that artsy-fartsy shit, right? Right. Now I go to the same person's house and they got $20 million paintings hanging on their wall, on multiple walls. It's a blessing because it's not how you start, it's how you finish the game. If you look at the past year, um, I was very quiet in art and I was acquiring very quiet because the Dean collection got so big and no commissions got so big that I didn't want people to think that it was a joke. I wanted people to understand that it's very serious of what we do, how we present ourselves. So I started just collecting quiet and I watched this whole new art boom happen with young artists. But what I also seen was a lot of the originality fade. Are you talking about
0: like in the last couple of years
1: when there's been this big focus on black artists? mainly the last year focus on black artists I was a big part of that right. and That was my mission to do that and even though I put the focus on black artists and African artists I'm not just a black collector I just mentioned to you Ansel Adams and Chagall and all these different things that we still have in our collection we have artists from all over the world but I've seen a lack of us collecting us in my community so that's what made me raise the bar and call pete diddy to spend 21 million dollars at sotheby's and get up and get out guys to do the right thing this at the
0: time was the auction record for a black artist it was carrie james marshall's pastimes at 21 million dollars i've read things here and there but would you share with us the story of what happened there
1: it took me 10 years for this to happen a lot of people don't understand to get somebody to get excited about spending $15 because that was the number at the time that we was aiming for, and letting him know Thelma Golden is doing her raise tonight for the museum. And how can we be a part of the culture and we don't own the culture? So I said, tonight we're going to go strong. That night, I broke the record for the Lynette, and then Puff broke the record for the Carrie James Marshall. And Sotheby's hadn't seen a night like that. The market for people of color hasn't went down since that night. It went up 6% that night. It hasn't been down nowhere near that since that night. I just remember feeling very powerful because everybody did the right thing. Thelma did the right thing. Pete Diddy did the right thing, although he was sweating and nervous and crying. This should be a documentary. Just the purchasing of this piece should be a documentary because life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And I seen Sean Combs be at the end of his comfort zone that night.
0: And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. Here's today's insight from the Art Basel and UBS Global Art Market Report, brought to you by UBS. Globally, the top priorities for philanthropists are education, social welfare, health, and the arts. Two thirds of art collectors are strongly motivated to support artists and culture. One in three plan to donate artworks to a charity or museum this year. What does the future hold for cultural philanthropy? For more insights, visit ubs.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. You've talked a lot about ownership. In fact, you took a hiatus from being in the record industry Because you wanted to rethink your relationship with ownership of what you were producing. Ownership of artworks wasn't a thing that we saw a lot of in arts as in music as well. When you think about these two industries that you're deeply involved with, how do you think about that in terms of ownership and specifically Black ownership? What shifts do you see? Where do you think there's still work to be done?
1: Ownership is a big word in music and arts and fashion and culture because I said this the other day when I was in school and fortunately I was able to go to Harvard and do the right thing and invest in myself. I remember the professor saying, let them think they own something and they'll work harder for you. I thought these people were just doing this. No, they actually like took a class and learned how to play us. <laughs> and that's the creatives and that's black, white, green, yellow. Isn't that just black people? Like That's just creatives, period. If you look at the creatives that make the world go round, the least paid in the world, the most taken advantage of in the world. So the ownership that we thought we had or we think we have, we really didn't have. That's what made me want to create no commissions and create verses and things like that because I love Basu and and I love what you do with Basu. But just seeing the dynamics of me curating different shows and things like that, I've noticed that Everybody was on their business except for the creatives. This whole thing is built around us as creatives. How the hell we don't know the business?
0: Tell us about the concept behind that and what you learned from it.
1: Launching No Commissions was a big risk because I've just built up a name with the galleries to get on their list and to be actually at the top of their list because they realized that. And I told them, I said, you're selling these artists of color. There's three people on the list 200 people. Maybe those three people should, should get a little bit more of priority on this, man. And it just was my consistency and my passion. A lot of people want to use the wrong tactics of racism to get things done. I didn't want to use that tactic. I wanted to use the tactic of being human and just speaking common sense. And that's how I got through to get the pieces that I've had today that are monumental that I can't even believe that I have at the price that I have to make. And the time that I have them, because a lot of the pieces in my collection were before their time. I would throw parties just for an art piece. <laughs> i threw a party for Derek Adams, the biggest Derek Adams that he's done to this day as a commission. i threw a party for it. Everybody was there, and I just wanted to have fun and just disrupt everything. So the person who introduced us was Nicola Vassell, and she
0: introduced us because you wanted to talk to me about this no commissions project that you were launching in Miami during our Basel Miami beach. Nicola finally just opened her gallery, which is something that I think you and I both encouraged her among many other people to do for a long time. How do you see this as someone for whom ownership is a pivotal matter? The absence of black owned galleries on the international scene on the national scenes even?
1: Well, Shout out to my sister, Nicola. I went to her gallery. She has an amazing show up by Ming Smith. And I remember surprising her a couple of weeks ago. And then I also thought it was something amazing with African American women taking ownership of something because they help build so much, but the ownership is very thin. And I remember Nicola helping me curate, forget helping me curate, curate, no commissions. And I'm like, why don't you get your own gallery? I'll pay for it, look at what you're doing. But she had to be ready. And then one day she called me and was like, Swiss, you're never gonna believe it, I did it. I closed on the property, I'm opening up the gallery. I'm happy to support her and support many more creatives of culture that wanna take that risk because opening up a gallery is a big risk. But the fact that she took the risk is
0: amazing. I learned that you had visited her along with, I'm sure, millions of other people, because I saw pictures on Instagram. And one of the things that's been interesting to watch is the way in which you use social media. Traditionally, collectors collected quite quietly. You've been very public about what you're buying and when you're buying it. I'm curious why you broke from the traditional opacity of the art collecting modus operandi.
1: Because I realized why people weren't showing the art they wasn't showing the art because they didn't want to embarrass themselves when they wanted to sell it. Me, I haven't sold a work still to this day of 20 something years. Every piece that I've talked about on this call, I still have. It's in storage, but I still have it. I never knew how to sell art. Building the Dean Collection, I, realized I started as a museum for my kids and my family and my last name. But then I realized that Using social media to show these artists love and light was doing a bigger job because I would show artists on my Instagram. Their show would literally sell out the next day. Galleries that weren't looking at these artists would literally bombard these artists the next day. I've been to people's house and we're sitting at dinner and they said, Oh, yeah, I carried in my house all for your Instagram. I bought everything that I've seen you post. And that's powerful as hell. Me collecting and being secretive about it. I used to be like that. You know, when I was collecting the works earlier, it was only for people that came to my home. Plus, art wasn't cool to collect at that time. Even a digital platform that I'm about to launch for art it's going to give people the information because a lot of people just don't know what to buy. By them seeing a person that they feel is successful, that makes the right judgment on creativity, give them some advice, everybody was following it. I also was creating competition for myself because a lot of these artists, I can't even afford now. <laughs> yeah, but that's your fault, you know? I know, like, I know, I know. <laughs> one of the things you've been
0: involved with, which I think is interesting and completely in line with your focus on ownership and the importance of equity in your creative production, is to try to push people towards instituting resale rights, which actually don't exist from a legal standpoint in the United States. hmm Talk to me about the
1: Dean's Choice. Yeah, the Dean's Choice is something I'm still working very hard on. I think we're very, very close. And that came from, really, the Kerry James Marshall. This painting wasn't even purchased for a couple of hundred thousand, but it sold for $21 million. And imagine if Kerry James Marshall had even 5% of that sale, or any artist have at least some percent of those sales of the life of that work. It would be even exchange when music... I get paid for everything that I do. Every time the song plays, I get paid, which is why I can afford what I buy today of for things that I've done 15, 20 years ago. And I think that the visual arts should have the same setup. Although we made Harry James Marshu the highest paid living African-American artist, it felt good, but then it was a killer at the same time because he didn't get to participate in that. And so I started speaking to all these different places from Christie's to Sotheby's to Phillips and Sam. what if we just offered people the chance or the choice to do something right? Listen, this is a living artist and you making 200 times your money. You're in a partnership with this artist. As a collector, we have to be responsible. So you can do the Dean's choice, which is your choice. You can give whatever percentage because I didn't want to put a limit on it because most people don't want to be told what to do. My thing was like, if we get five people to do it, we won. Are you kind of running an informal school for collecting? In my mind, I am. But in reality, I'm not there yet. But what I love people to understand is because people come up to me and they look at art as an investment. I don't look at art as an investment. I look at it as a welcome to the family. So my logic is way different from what people would think. How can I buy this artist's work and own it when they put their life into this? So... What I'm doing is I'm welcoming this artist to the family. Every artist that's in the Dean Collection is you know my kids, been to my home, been to our residencies around the U.S. And it's a family. And I love it that way. And I have fun with, you know, collecting and protecting and letting people understand that everything that's creative is not for sale. So I think that um, people just have to have a different mind frame when it comes to art. My thing is find your position and lead it.
0: As a collector, do you see yourself in the artists whose work you collect?
1: Yes, I do. I do see myself in the artists' works I collect because most of the artists, when I collect them, they're vulnerable, they're passionate, they have very low knowledge of business, but they just know their craft. And that's how I came into this. I can say that I was educated out of my 42 years, I was educated on what I was doing five years out of those 42 years. Most of those things were instincts. Most of them things were feelings. And that's why I tell people, I'm like, yo, don't collect nothing that you don't feel. I don't care how much you think it's worth tomorrow. For me, I can't hang. I I don't buy paintings that feel evil. If I can't hang it in my house, I can't collect it. I've let go so many pieces because the meaning of that piece didn't resonate with me. And I think in music, if the song doesn't resonate, I don't put it out. So it's kind of like the parallel line of that.
0: there's a point at which a collector becomes a patron. And I'm curious, was there anyone who influenced you to make that change?
1: Yeah, the artists influenced me to make that change because I actually seen that I was changing their lives. It was something I couldn't ignore. I came in through the entry of the gallery, but then when I started going to artist studios and traveling the world and seeing how much struggle the artists go through, I felt a deeper connection with the artists personally.
0: I saw that you and Alicia are the co-chairs of the Gordon Parks Foundation, which is interesting because Gordon Parks was not just, of course, a photographer, and we know your affinity for photography, but also a filmmaker, a musician, an activist. First of all, did you meet Gordon Parks, who died in two thousand and six?
1: I wish I did. I was supposed to be at the photo shoot he did with all of the musicians in Harlem, and I remember being in the studio and so in love with my craft that everybody left the studio. It's like we're going to this gordon parks photo shoot and everybody's coming and i was just like okay well i'll see you guys later um, i now own the photo of that day but imagine if i was in that photo of that day and it's one of the things that i always would regret not going to yeah
0: but now 15 years after his death you're the co-chairs of the foundation how did that happen and what does it mean and what are your ambitions there
1: I would see Gordon Parks work in non-African-American and African people's homes. I don't own none of those, and I don't see all these people talking about all this money they have. That's in our culture, own any of them also. The same thing with Candy Wiley. Was why I have to, that big-ass piece from him was because when I went to his retrospect, I didn't see any African-American last names on those people. And I, him, I said, and I didn't see any African-Americans visiting the show. I said, they? I mean, your paintings of us, where's everybody at? And he was like... You know, what? sadly, I don't sell to our people like that. And that's just disgusted me. And the Gordon Parks thing, when I started seeing that people didn't even know who Gordon Parks was, my mission, which we've completed, it took four years to do it. We completed becoming the biggest Gordon Parks private collection in the world, which is the Dean collection. And, and so I had to support the Gordon Parks Foundation. And it is a collaboration with the foundation to do great things. And being the executive producer with my wife on this new documentary that's coming out, from him. This is why we do it. Not only to buy something, but to continue the legacy of what we're participating in.
0: Do you think artists should be taught about the market in art school? Should there be a compulsory class in art school about the workings of the art market?
1: Of course. I think education is key. It will help the industry. It will help the artists. It will help everything that even that you have going on. I think the lack of knowledge It's serious. And a lot of people think art is just for rich people. That's just like saying, I can't go to work unless I have a Bentley. No, you're going to go feed your kids if you have a Buick or a Honda. And then you're going to put on your list to earn that Bentley when you get it. You're not going to not go to work because you have a Bentley. So that's like saying, I'm not going to collect art unless I can get Barclay Hendricks. No, man, start where you can start. And where you end up through the duration of the time, that's a blessing. You're in a business
0: which creates stars all the time, music. And let's face it, even a pop star that just came out six months ago, that person is more famous than Barclay Hendricks and Kerry James Marshall put together. How do you think about the fact that these two industries you're involved in are so radically different in terms of their broader
1: impact? I never really compared a a musician to a visual artist because what I see as an artist, Even though the status of one may be higher than the other, my love and gratitude for all of the works that both artists do is the same. So it's interesting hearing you break it down like that because in my 42 years, I never compared the two of them because music and art is brothers and sisters. like There's never been a piece of music that didn't have art attached to it. It's never been art that didn't have music attached to it. When you go to an artist gallery, they're playing music. That's why when galleries are quiet, I feel awkward. I'm like, man, this is not really representing the artist. I've, I've been to this artist studio; like, there was music playing, there was a vibe happening. And then we get to the gallery; it's quiet as hell. And you got to put your hand behind your back and walk around.
0: The beauty of galleries is that they provide great cultural content for free to anybody who's willing to walk off the street. And yet, you and I both know that a lot of people feel intimidated by galleries. Like, what would you suggest galleries could do? to make themselves less intimidating to a broader public, if that's even what they want. Have you thought about that? As someone who walked into galleries with cornrows, with baggy pants 20 years ago, how would you think they should treat this problem today?
1: I had a bad time early with the galleries because of my parents. But you know what? At the end of the day, I didn't give up. And a lot of people like to use all of those things as an excuse not to support the creatives. If you're a creative, you're gonna take the time out to do the right thing. You're gonna take the time out to let people understand who you are, understand your passion, and learn. You know, we can use the financial model or the race model as a deterrent for us moving forward. I chose not to do that. I chose to take my time and understand why this person wasn't used to talking to me. I've learned to take my ego out of it now and just build with the artists and say, you know what, this is not about me impressing the gallery or the person on the floor. This is about me supporting the artists that need to feed their family. And I don't care if I'm turned down. I've been turned down 20 times for artists that one may feel that the Dean Collections have uh, the first rights over. But I can't take myself that serious. Do I get frustrated that some of the galleries is leaning more towards their old Rolodex? Yes, but what I do is I build a good relationship and let them know I haven't traded a work. I don't do secondary market things. And I could bring a whole audience to your artists. Just because I have no commission, that doesn't mean I'm anti-gallery. The only time we don't see eye to eye is when I feel that they're not doing the right thing by their artists.
0: You mentioned often the influence that artists have had on your relationship with collecting, and also the the extent to which the relationship with the artist is important in terms of building the Dean collection. Is there one artist, or are there a couple of artists, with whom you've had a particularly fruitful dialogue?
1: Many Kahende Wiley was the first artist that put his name on the line for No Commission as a major artist. I remember a lot of the artists were nervous to be a part of No Commission because they thought it was anti-gallery, which is not. And Kahende was like, you know what? I love this concept. I love this vision. I'm going to be a part of it. So when people seen Kahende Wiley a part of No Commission, a lot of the major artists joined. I thought it was important to hang the upcoming artists on the wall with the artists that are very established with no discrimination because art is art.
0: Kehinde is a contemporary of ours. I think he's between my age and your age, roughly. Are there more older artists, artists from the generation of Barclay Hendrix or David Hammonds or Kerry James Marshall who have been important figures in your life?
1: Ernie Barnes was a mentor to me. I had so much respect for him that when I purchased his work, I would fly him in so he could pick where he wanted to hang in my home. I seen that he was happy because nobody ever did what I was doing with him. And I didn't even know that I was doing something special. I was just doing something that I felt was right. Forget so where I want to hang the paint in my house. Let him come in and tell me where he think it should hang. I was around 23 at that time.
0: How did you discover Ernie Barnes? Because that's not an artist that a lot of people know. He certainly wasn't, even among Black artists, the most famous of his contemporaries.
1: Yeah, which is a shame because he was a professional athlete that stopped doing his professional job that was paying him very well and turned into an artist. He gave his life to creativity. I mean, he's the first African-American artist in the Museum of Sports. I've known his work from doing the Marvin Gaye covers and doing the artwork for Good Times and honored to have his first piece he ever did in 1950 of his hometown. And I might have one of the biggest Ernie Barnes collections in the world. I just didn't count them yet. But being able to speak to Ernie and have him as a mentor early in my life, way before I started collecting the artists that people know me for. I spent a lot of time with Ernie, and it's just amazing to be able to connect with the sauce. Barnes
0: was famous for a painting called The Sugar Shack, which is a depiction of people dancing in obviously a very poor area, but on Cutting Loose on a Saturday night.
1: Was there a connection over music with him as well? Me and Ernie never connected on music. I remember this time where he called me. Man, I have this guy calling me. He's from your business. His name is Kanye West. And shit, I don't know this guy, man. I, I'm going to charge him the full price. And it was very expensive at that time, but he wanted to charge Kanye. And Kanye still has the piece. I think he wanted it because it was of his family. And it was a piece that was to hang on the ceiling over a dining room table. It was in the shape of a circle, this piece. And I remember Kanye calling me. He's like, man, Ernie Barnes, speak highly of you but I think he's overcharging me. <laughs> and I was like, I don't negotiate with artists. I went back to Ernie. I said, listen, I think that you and Kanye is a good fit. I think you should give them the same price that you would give to me. And he ended up doing it. And Kanye and Ernie became
0: great friends. That's an amazing story. And I think very illustrative of how you've worked in promoting artists to the people you know within your industry, but also promoting a certain kind of ethos about collecting. When you think about having the power you have, when you think about the impact you want to have on the world, what are the rules you live by?
1: The rules I live by is very simple. It's just keeping it real. Because we live in a world that's so artificial. And most of the times, it's like having a hit record. Everybody want to talk to you, but when that record's not hot, then people will walk right past you. So how do you maintain your integrity? How do you maintain your poise to move forward? That's where the strength come in is. How you move forward in this world of artificial. And my thing is, like, I'm going to keep it real. Like, even this conversation, I didn't bite my tongue for anything that I'm telling you. Some people are going to agree. Some people are not going to agree. But it's my truth. So I have to stand by it. Everything is not for everybody.
0: I think that's a perfect place
1: to end. Thank you so much, Kassim. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast, brought to you by UBS. We'll have a new show every other week. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.